0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our coverage continues now with lovable, loyal Laura and awesome, (laughs) adorable... Allison, I like that. I did a little alliteration there, and I challenged myself. I gave you each two adjectives.
1: Yeah, you're really it upping the ante, aren't you? Yeah. Aren't you ever insightful, Jake? I was that's, almost a, 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 a uh,
2: Labrador retriever in the description, but that's fine. I'll-
3: <laughs>
2: the L I was, adjectives, I, I, mean, I, I,
0: I confess, the L adjectives, I was a little hard-pressed. I'm sorry. Okay.
2: That's okay, I appreciate it. I I should have come in my Maleficent costume today and given you plenty of fodder to have other titles for me. That's okay, I appreciate it. Don't you, Allison? I I
1: really appreciate it, but I wish that you had brought at least a picture of yourself from Halloween trick-or-treating with your kids tonight. I would love to see the
2: Maleficent. What are you
4: doing trick-or-treating? I've been here all day. What are you talking about?
1: No, We've already done Halloween.
2: We've already done Halloween at home with our kids. We went to your house, though, Jake, and you had the full size stickers bar, so I appreciate that. Thank you so much. We
5: do have, uh, I, I, how do you, went home and trick or treated? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I did,
2: I did. It's called, I mean, what did Ginger Rogers once say, Allison? What the heck? We do everything that men do, just backwards and in heels.
1: That's exactly right. You want something done, <laughs> give it to a busy one,
2: okay? Okay. So, I, Interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, have a good Jake, show. Happy Halloween. Thanks so much. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Okay.
1: All right. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata in New York.
2: And I'm Laura Coates. I'm already crying for some reason. My humor makes me laugh. This is CNN (laughs) Tonight. And what we're learning tonight about this horrible attack that put Nancy Pelosi's husband in the hospital with a fractured skull, mind you, well, it's just one shocking detail after another. The suspect, who's now been charged with multiple serious crimes, including assault, attempted murder, and attempted kidnapping. Allegedly, he had zip ties and tape, rope, and at least one hammer with him.
1: So, Laura, that court filing spells out how the suspect planned to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage and, quote, break her kneecaps Mm -hmm. if she did not tell him what he wanted to hear. San Francisco's district attorney saying tonight it appears the attack was politically motivated. But all of this information and all of the facts from police officers who witnessed the crime are not enough for right wing conspiracy theorists who are spreading their own twisted baseless theories to their millions of followers. And, of course, Elon Musk was no different. Mm. So let's start there. Let's bring in uh, my panel, which is John Miller, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. We also have journalist Mara Escampo and Washington Post columnist Max Boot. Great to have all of you here tonight. John, as someone who for decades has dealt with evidence and just the facts, ma'am, it must be so frustrating to you to do all of this reporting And then see all of these strange, twisted, warped theories crop up online from people with millions of followers. And so let's just debunk some of them tonight, because I know that you have all the latest information. No, uh, Paul Pelosi and the attacker did not know each other,
4: correct? They both agree on that.
1: Oh, very good. (coughs) Um, Was there a third person in the House at the time who opened the door for the cops?
4: No, Paul Pelosi opened the door for the cops. And right after that was unconscious. So they didn't get to interview him for literally till Sunday night. But they did interview the suspect. And he said Pelosi opened the door. Since then, Pelosi has said he opened the door. So they agree on that, too.
1: And here is what the DA said today about the timeline. So she gave us more information that we hadn't known. So here's that moment.
6: And at some point during that encounter... Mr. Pelosi attempted to access the elevator in the home which has a phone. The defendant then blocked Mr. Pelosi's access to that elevator. It was at some point after that Mr. Pelosi asked to go to the bathroom, which is where he was able to call 911 from his cell phone. The defendant, realizing that Mr. Pelosi had called 911, took Mr. Pelosi downstairs near the front door. Of the residents. It's scary stuff,
1: John. What more do we need to know?
4: Well, one of the developments that uh, came up today, which really hasn't been discussed, is there's a statement um, when uh, DePop is interviewed by the FBI, the Capitol Police, and the San Francisco Police and prosecutors at the same time, where, he, where he has, he's, he's making derogatory comments about Hillary Clinton and Hunter Biden and the usual parade of Democratic suspects um, for that genre. But he says he was going to get Nancy Pelosi to lure one of them to the house. So think about that for a second, Ali. It's a plan where he is kidnapped and held hostage the husband of the Speaker of the House. He's going to tie him up so that he, the suspect, can take a nap while they wait for Nancy to come home because he's very tired. Then when Nancy comes home, he's going to interrogate her maybe break her kneecaps, and then force her to lure somebody else from the political spectrum that he wants to um, kidnap to the location. That's a lot.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to see how this could be anything but political violence, given all of that milieu that you've just talked about.
4: I think if you look at that statute, Title 18, U.S. Code uh, 115, and you read the statute, anyone who assaults, threatens, threatens to assault, uh, kidnaps, holds hostage a federal official, to intimidate them from doing their job, or a family member have said he pretty much ticks every part of of the statute.
1: Mara, there is nothing, there is no crime horrible enough in as is in our time that conspiracy theorists can't try to pervert in some way. Not 9-11, not Sandy Hook school shooting. They just, it's not bad enough for them. They have to make it somehow more twisted. And I mean, the fact that, Elon Musk, you know peddled this along with the Steve Bannons of the world and the Roger Stones, it uh, shows what horrible judgment he has. Yeah, I mean,
7: it actually shows you how much deeper this goes than just kind of the random fringe conspiracy theorists who are trying to make this something that it's not. When you have the new owner of Twitter, the richest man in the world, and someone with the largest Twitter audience in the world, retweeting a conspiracy theory that has no evidence and is completely baseless in the wake of this awful attack And when you hear the details about the attack, it makes it clear that this was much worse than any of us had initially realized, even though we realized it was really, really bad. It was even worse than we realized. And what that shows us now is a lot about the current political climate. You know, Dan Rather, the legendary journalist, has a metaphor that I love. He says, climate change did not create hurricanes, but it made them much worse. And it's the same with political violence. Political violence has always existed on all sides of the political spectrum. But today's political climate is making it much worse, and it is a unique uniquely right-wing problem right now. We cannot both sides
1: this, given what we've seen in the last few years. Enter Max Boot. You wrote a piece for The Washington Post about this yesterday, um, about how uh, it's not both sides, actually. The the lion's share of this is right-wing political violence and rhetoric.
8: Absolutely. I mean, you saw that Threats against members of Congress increased something like tenfold after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. He and his followers still engage in violent extremist rhetoric. Remember that uh, Trump has been calling Speaker Pelosi Crazy Nancy for years. Remember that this attacker in San Francisco was asking, Where's Nancy, which is pretty much the same thing that the mob was asking on January 6th when they invaded the Capitol. This is a sickness, but it's not divorced from the Republican Party. And unfortunately, if you see the reaction of the Republican Party to what happened in San Francisco, you're seeing why we have this cycle of violence, because Republicans are not denouncing the extremists in their own ranks. And you see a lot of Republicans, really, really sick stuff, including Republican elected officials who are making fun of this, who are poking fun of Paul Pelosi who could have easily died in this horrifying assault. And then you see, of course, as you mentioned, and we're discussing a second ago, you see all these insane uh, conspiracy theories which are being spread by potent Republican influencers like Dinesh D'Souza and many others. So there is a real sickness on the right here, which is when you have this combination of extremist rhetoric leading to extremist actions. And I'm very concerned because I don't see Republicans taking a step back and asking about their responsibility for creating this climate of hatred.
1: Okay, friends, thank you very much for all of those insights. Uh, Laura, I'll hand it over to your panel.
2: You know, speaking of that very notion, I want to bring in our panel here. We've got CNN Global Affairs Analyst Susan Glasser, also Political Analyst Sungmin Kim, and Andrew McCabe, CNN Senior Law Enforcement Analyst. Before we begin, let's pick up where they left off, because it's not just the idea of the moral equivalencies and the false ones that are being drawn, it's becoming a punchline already. Here was the, you know, it was Carrie Lake out of Arizona already trying to look at this issue, you guys, from the perspective of keeping schools safe and using Pelosi as a punchline. Listen to this. It is not
1: impossible to protect our kids at school. They act like it is.
2: Nancy Pelosi.
1: Well, she's got protection when she's in the visa. Apparently, her house doesn't have a lot of protection. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hmm. I mean, this is a very serious matter. It's not as if he's out of the woods yet. And you know a little something about what happens when vitriol and rhetoric, Andrew, turns into the prospect of violence. I mean, we've seen this a great deal, unfortunately. What has been your reaction to what you were hearing from the law enforcement perspective, but also how this intersects with your personal experience?
3: Sure. So we know, Laura, how this sort of language, this sort of rhetoric uh, resonates with the very, the furthest, most extreme segment of the population, right? We've seen it uh, often. We've seen it in many cases recently. Cesar Sayok, who decided to put 16 pipe bombs in the mail to people he thought were enemies of Donald Trump. Uh, before that, you had um, the gentleman from North Carolina who traveled up to Washington, D.C. and shot up the Comet Ping Pong Pizza restaurant following the conspiracy theories of QAnon. So we know that conspiracy theories and this sort of heated rhetoric really resonates with that extreme population. The problem is that we have political leaders, and to be clear, I'm talking about political leaders on the right right now, who know that that sort of language also resonates with their supporters. So they're willing to go there. They're willing to say things like you just heard from uh, from Kerry Lake and from others, because of the short-term personal political benefit is worth the risk that they're creating. And I think it's uh, despicable.
2: When you think about that, the idea of why it resonates and the sort of the, the way of having and appealing to grievance politics, but the way it's flipped is almost like, a, oh, well, you know, look what happens in our own house. The idea of those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones was the, was the takeaway that I had from that particular pun in part. But the idea of this resonates I and mean, politically speaking, when you think about this, Why is it continuing to resonate, you think, in terms of how strategists think about this?
6: Well, I think one reason why it's resonating and allowing to fester is that there aren't voices within their own party, again, talking about the Republican Party, that aren't condemning it, that aren't saying this is wrong. This is an act of political violence. I will point out there are many Republican officials, Republican leaders who have condemned this violence. You have Kevin McCarthy reaching out to Speaker Pelosi, checking on her family. She's okay. But I haven't heard many, if at all, Republican voices saying what Carrie Lake is saying is wrong, what uh, the, the conspiracy theories that some on the right are spreading is wrong. And when you don't have that, again, it's allowed to spread. It's allowed to fester. And, and 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 that's kind of what we're seeing right now. And by the way, we're talking about what's festering. I mean, in part, he wanted to break her kneecaps unless
2: she told him that's the right. truth. <clears throat> and of course, what that truth is seems to be rooted in his vision of conspiracy theories and what to hold her to account to. And if she lied, different scenario. I mean, this is part of what we can't think of a vacuum. I mean, They were calling for Nancy on January 6th as well, Speaker of the House. But it should strike people. This is somebody who is in the direct line of succession for the presidency. We're not talking about I mean, just obviously anyone as a target be problematic. But this is vitriol that seems to consistently target her. And I emphasize her. Yeah, that's right.
9: There's no question that you know Donald Trump and many of his followers have, you know, been very purposeful and specific in turning Pelosi and, you know, demonizing her. Now, remember, this goes back. uh, There's a long tradition that long predates Donald Trump, unfortunately, of misogyny in American public life. Let's be real about that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was the first woman speaker when she was elected speaker before Donald Trump was president. Republicans at that time made her into kind of the national face of their campaign to reclaim control of the House of Representatives. They demonized her at the time. What's different, and I think it's very important, is this astonishing rise in the number of politicized threats of violence against members of Congress. That is what skyrocketed uh, since Donald Trump was president. And of course, to your point about what was it that this attacker allegedly was saying, you know, about Nancy Pelosi and the truth that relates very specifically to Donald Trump and the big lie about the election. And I think that's very important. Uh, this is an agenda that has now become the Republican Party's agenda. But I have to say one final thing. I don't know about you listening to that clip of it's not just what Carrie Leak said. It's the laughter it's the right. laughter that really I find yeah. to be so haunting It and didn't so come terrible. from her.
2: It came from those in the audience. And, and that's why you
9: ask the question, why do the politicians do it? Because it's popular, because they're getting a laugh line mm. off an 82-year-old man in the ICU fighting for his life.
2: That's absolutely right. When you think absolutely about this, I mean, you, you had a point.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think you talk about that demonization of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, you see that in uh, this attacker's own words that he viewed Nancy as, quote, the leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party. So that's the mindset that he brings into this into this attack. That's what's motivating him to go after uh, Nancy Pelosi in her home, finds her husband, takes him instead.
2: I mean, it's unbelievable, Alice. I mean, you really think about where we are and, and what could have happened. I mean, there's a conversation, of course, if the idea of the security forces that would have been present had Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, been in that home. But I can't help but think back to that congressional baseball game, right? I mean, when you had but for Secret Service and those who were present because of the line of succession, what could have happened then, too? All true. And I think that, I mean, what your panel was just talking
1: about, it's not just disagreeing with someone, it's dehumanizing the other side. So you can laugh at them, you can call them names, you can think they're the leader of a pack of whatever, fill in the blank, everything from, you know, wolves to demons. Mm. And that's... It's leading to violence. I mean, we just see the direct line. So tell us what you think about why so many people cannot deal with facts and fall for conspiracy theories and what can be done and anything else you want to say to Laura and me. You can tweet us at Alison Camerata at the Laura Coates hashtag CNN sound off. Four new swing state polls show just how close these races are in the final days before midterms. In Nevada, the race for Senate is in a dead heat between Catherine Cortez Masto and Republican Adam Laxalt. In Georgia, Senator Raphael Warnock is ahead of Herschel Walker, but still within the margin of error. And Mark Kelly holds a narrow lead over Blake Masters in Arizona. In Pennsylvania, John Fetterman has a slim lead over Dr. Mehmet Oz, making it the Democrats' best hope for a pickup seat. I want to bring in our panel. We have CNN political commentator Charlie Dent, journalist Mara Escampo, and political analyst Ested Herndon. Ested, let's start with you, and let's also look at where the big names are who are hitting the trail this week. So Donald Trump will be in Iowa, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Ohio. President Biden will be in New Mexico, Florida tomorrow, Maryland, Pennsylvania this weekend, and then Obama tomorrow, Nevada, Wednesday, Arizona, Pennsylvania this weekend. What does that tell us? What does that map tell
5: us? I mean, I, I think it shows us what we know are going to be the races that the Senate really comes down to, specifically that race in Nevada, the race in Arizona. When you look across to Georgia and Pennsylvania, this is going to be where the Senate has won and lost. But in the Democrats' best hope here, they were hoping to have a little bit more offense on that map than they currently do. They're really playing defense and hoping to keep that kind of 50-50 split going, but they're calling in the big guns. President Biden does have an agenda he can point to, even though that job approval rating hasn't been getting him called in. They're calling in President Obama, who remains the most popular person for them in the party and bringing it in terms of endorsements. But it's not driving the base energy in the same way that they need. They are coming in on a downward slope and not an upward slope, no matter which Democrat you talk to right now.
1: Let's talk about whether or not former President Obama is driving the energy. So he was in Wisconsin this weekend, and he um, was there for the Democrat Mandela Barnes, who's running against Senator Ron Johnson. Um, and basically he was joking about what's in a name. So here's this moment.
10: I know these ads are running this way, that just because Mandela's named Mandela, <laughs> And just because he's a Democrat with a with a funny name, he must not be like you. He must not share your values. I mean we've seen this. It, it sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? So so Mandela, get ready to dig up that birth certificate. Get ready.
1: So, um, I mean, obviously, President Obama continues to be very popular. Maybe he does inspire the base somehow. I know, Charlie, you think that this won't make a bit of difference.
11: I don't. Why? uh, Because the midterm dynamic is pretty much set in stone. Uh, In fact, President Obama didn't have a particularly good midterm record himself. In 2010, Democrats were wiped out in the House. Then in 2014, they lost the Senate in addition to some House seats. So I, I don't know. I think this is a consolation prize. I remember in 2010 when Bill Clinton came in against me twice, Joe Biden and Obama once. And I was winning all the polls. And I said to my pollster, what's this all about? I and mean, what, what are they wasting their time here for? So it's just a consolation prize for them. They're going to lose. But that's all right. Let them come up. And so this I, I don't think it's going to make any difference. I mean, we, we know what the numbers are. Things are kind of moving toward the Republican side on the issues. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to fight fight history. So they're going to try. But. I don't think they're going to have a good outcome in in the House for sure and, and maybe not the Senate.
7: Mara, how do you see it? Yeah, well, I have to agree with Charlie. You know, I think the question is, what moves the needle at this point? You have seven races that are all pretty much within the margin of error. And while Obama certainly excites people, and it's so nice to see a political superstar, I mean, you almost forgot what a political superstar looks like until you see him in his element. Um, But the question is, does it move the needle? What are the closing arguments? You know, he's trying to make the argument that this election is really about a check on the Supreme Court, that people have to make sure that their rights are protected on the state level. But is that enough to move people? Is that enough to move? swing voters. Uh, the question of, of inflation. You know, people are tying inflation to the president. So that argument really doesn't help because they blame the current administration for what's happening with inflation and the economy. So the question is, what gets people to the polls? And we already have 20 million people who have already voted. So it doesn't matter with those people here because they've already they already cast their ballots. Um, and so everything that's happening right now makes no difference to them. So all of this can be exciting. It can be a useful organizing tool when Obama gets people out to get out there and to yeah. get and to make sure people are registered and they know where to vote and those types of things. But I don't see it changing anything in the the outcome of these races. In
1: terms of getting people to the polls, um, Obama talked about that and basically cautioned Democrats not to be mopey. So here's that.
10: But I'm here to tell you that tuning out is not an option. Moping is not an option. We don't have time to mope. Don't get distracted Don't get bamboozled. Don't fall for the okey doke that says nothing you say or do matters. You go out and what?
5: Pep Talk, I said. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's one that we're going to hear more Democrats giving. I mean, when you talk to Democratic strategists, elected officials, they'll talk about political nihilism among their base. The idea that their base feels so checked out, so disconnected from the system, so kind of pessimistic about the future. That they're not receiving any political messages. I think that's what the former president is trying to speak to right there. The problem for Democrats is, is that there's good reason for for, for folks to feel like that. There is a real kind of broken system that, that hasn't really delivered for Democrats on their biggest issues. They keep running into a filibuster. They keep running into gerrymandering. They keep having to deliver those excuses for their base to say why they did not follow through on those core campaign promises. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy for the party, where since they're not fulfilling that, they are then having trouble getting the base excited again.
1: Um, Charlie, you uh, have talked, I think, quite um, in an unvarnished way about John Fetterman, uh, about how he's um, performing since his stroke. And his word finding difficulties that you said were quite pronounced, you felt, during the um, debate. So Don Lemon sat down uh, with John Fetterman. You'll see more of this tomorrow morning when the new morning show launches here on CNN. But here is a piece of that.
4: Let me start with the aftermath of the violent attack on the House Speaker's husband at their home. What do the attack and the subsequent conspiracy theories say about the state of our politics right now?
10: Yeah, I I just uh, of course I was appalled by that and of course the the kind of vitriol that is out there in in, uh, the political conversation out in America now is is
4: astonishing, Um, it's it's unconscionable. On Elon Musk pushing conspiracy theories about Paul Pelosi and the attack on him, what is your message to him as he takes over this giant megaphone that is Twitter? Uh,
10: no I, I I just am, am really just a, 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 about just saying that that I, I just want to make sure that we use y- your enormous uh, your enormous power to, to just make sure that you know we don't have the kind of a platform where we push those kinds of, of theories
11: any thoughts on no, I, I feel sad for him I, I I just thought it was wrong that his campaign team trotted him out for that debate. Uh, he wasn't ready. And, and I'm sympathetic to people who have strokes. I lost my grandfather to a stroke, killed him immediately. I lost my aunt, She see, uh, three days after one. Another aunt, 15 years in a wheelchair. So I'm very sympathetic. But at the same time, you know, they, they have just not been transparent about this. And I felt very strongly they should have replaced him on the ballot back in the summertime. They weren't transparent. They understated the problem. Uh, they had a, they were forced into that debate. They shouldn't have done it.
1: Well, I mean, but, you could argue that doing that debate was the ultimate transparency.
11: Well, yeah, but they should release the medical records. I mean, what's so what's so hard about that? I mean, just trust us. Everything's going to be OK. Well, you know, I, I'm very good friends with Mark Kirk, Senator Kirk. He had a massive stroke one year in. he was very transparent about everything. And, you know, he, and he's and he been paralyzed and we were all there a year. It took him a year to come back. To yeah,
1: the but I don't think that any medical records tell you exactly what day you're going to be better from a stroke and when you're not going to have word finding difficulties. I mean, I think that, you know, he yeah. did release it, a, a letter from his doctor. Um, I guess my point is, that I don't know that that would have been satisfying. But either way, it's possible also that a one on one interview is an easier one to process than a debate, but we'll see tomorrow when Don's uh, on Don's show on the morning show. Uh, they have the full um, interview. That everyone will see any final thoughts
7: on you know i think the problem is that it raised too many questions you know there is a tremendous amount of compassion for john fetterman and for his recovery in the process but i think that that debate and some of the interviews that we've seen since you know now he's out there trying to do a little bit of damage control but they still continue to raise questions about whether or not he is recovered enough to perform the duties required of
1: him and whether or not his campaign has been transparent enough throughout this entire process yeah, absolutely thank you guys very much Uh, Laura, so again, everybody should tune in tomorrow morning, 6 to 9. They'll see the full interview as well as CNN's new morning show.
2: We definitely need to do that. And I have to say, I'm a little taken aback, though, Allison, because I was looking at the substance of what he said. Now, it's one of the constant refrains I hear from people um, is the emphasis they believe the media is unfairly putting on John Fetterman based on the stroke and putting literally form over substance in terms of how people view the content of his message. There, he was talking about the attack on Mr. Pelosi, and um, but you see, you know, widespread conversations about how and what he's doing to communicate. And so, I'm just wondering if the voters in Pennsylvania have that same focus. Transparency or not, I'm, I'm wondering. We have only eight days to go until we'll actually see what that looks like, but I'll be curious to see what happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's their lieutenant governor, so they know him. They know. Um, and they probably already have opinions on his record and on him prior to the stroke, but mm-hmm. um, but yes, we shall see.
2: Well, we know we won't see anytime soon. The Supreme Court's ruling on a very important case today because they could be poised to change the role of race in deciding who gets into college. And the question everyone's asking, especially today, was should race even be a factor? I'll make my case next. Two schools one is Harvard, the oldest private institution. The other, University of North Carolina, the oldest public institution in the country. But because both accept federal money for programs, they have to answer the same question. Can you consider race in admissions without violating equal protection? Now, one said side says absolutely you can. You should be able to consider race as long as it's not the only or the sole decisive factor. It's got to be part of a holistic evaluation that considers other criteria like extracurricular activities or sports or musical talent or writing, your grades, for some, whether your parents are alums. And because race permeates nearly every facet of our lives and is a root cause of Many of the inequalities that presently exist in our educational system, we cannot be colorblind. Now, this holistic approach to college admissions is used by a huge variety of colleges, large and small, including, by the way, the U.S. military academies.
6: Petitioner seeks a sweeping ruling that would harm students at schools and colleges throughout the nation. A blanket ban on race-conscious admissions would cause racial diversity to plummet at many of our nation's leading educational institutions.
2: Then there's the other side that answers the question by saying, no, you should not be able to consider race at all. And a university ought not to even be able to discover the race of the student or question it because they argue your race should not decide where you get to go to school or where you cannot. After all, they say, isn't that why we fought for integrated schools? Because race shouldn't matter? This argument holds that test scores and grades ought to be the primary consideration because they believe that these, these criteria are truly objective. And because the admissions office shouldn't be able to consider race, even just referenced as part of an essay or through their membership in an affinity organization should never be considered, well, It has no or little value in how you choose a candidate. In fact, the court's newest justice questioned this very notion today. Is there a risk
12: of treating people differently by not allowing some applicants to talk about that aspect of their identity? I hear a process in which there's a form that says, tell us about yourself, and people can put all sorts of things. I'm Catholic. I'm from, you know, Los Angeles. I'm a Latina, whatever. But now we're we're entertaining a rule in which some people can say the things they want about who they are and have that valued in the system, but other people are not going to be able to.
2: And why? Because even knowing the race perhaps may factor into the admissions process, they believe. So the question is, who is right on this answer, whether you can use race as one of the factors or at all? Well, nine justices, including three senior justices, Chief Justice Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, who've all, by the way, previously dissented when they've had um, cases around whether to uphold affirmative action. Look, if oral arguments are any guide tonight... Six justices seem to say that race ought to be on the cutting room floor. But the why they say that is perhaps the most intriguing. It comes down to, well, timing, shall we say.
8: I don't see how you can say that the program will ever end. Your position is that race matters because it's necessary for diversity, which is necessary for the sort of education you want. It's not going to stop mattering at some particular point. You're always going to have to look at race because you say race matters to give us the necessary diversity.
2: So I guess it comes down to just how long things like affirmative action have to exist before we have reached equity in education. I mean, was it the conceptual 25 more years referenced in the 2003 decision in Grutter versus Bollinger? Well, it's one of the last instances the Supreme Court had to grapple with this issue in full. Or is it indefinitely, as the justice seems to fear today? Or maybe it's simply as long as it takes for race not to be a factor in accessing wealth or accessing resources or housing inequality or economic inequality or opportunities in general or for race not to be a part of the effects of historical inequality and waiting for that to resolve. Maybe it takes that long. And maybe then, the day after that, well, race can be irrelevant. Joining us now is legal analyst, CNN legal analyst and Supreme Court biographer Joan Biscufik. Swingman Kim is also back with us. And CNN political commentator Ashley Allison is also with us now. I mean, you think about where this is and that issue of the deadline. Um, we've heard this argument in part before about the idea of America being more race neutral because of election of a black president, for example. Um, Ideas surrounding us being colorblind. And the courts have really been teeing this up for quite some time, especially the chief justice, right?
13: That's right. You know, it was the chief who, in a voting rights case, said things have changed in the South. We no longer need the remedies, certain remedies of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And he was incredibly animated today during this five-hour hearing, a very tense Uh, But very fast paced, too. And the chief, who's also operating as a bit of a traffic cop among Mm -hmm. uh, all his colleagues, was really dominating at part, including that that clip you just played, Laura. But also because this is an area where he really has controlled. You know, a lot of people remember from June when he lost control Mm -hmm. of the decision that fully overturned Roe v. Wade. And there were a lot of stories saying, oh, he's lost control of the court. No, I've always felt that, you know, he he lost control in a very defining case involving Roe. Yes, definitely. But when it comes to race and so many more issues, John Roberts is driving this card this court very hard and to the right. And his and idea the
2: destination is to end Roe, is to end affirmative action.
13: Yes, 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 because think of what has already happened on the Voting Rights Act. Think of what he did in 2007 also on school integration plans that was in Seattle and the Louisville cases where not only was he with the majority to say that these um, integration plans to counteract, you know, segregated uh, housing patterns, you know, the lingering effect of segregation, that those housing plans, those school integration plans couldn't be taken into effect. But that's when he said the way to stop uh, discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on Mm -hmm. the basis of race. And he's also referred to this sordid business divvying us up by race. So he sees
2: it only as a negative. And he's been very reductive in that notion, right? The idea, oh, here's how you stop. Well, think about race. Is that realistic? No. And I think your point around the
14: Shelby case, where he started to lay the foundation of making race an issue. Mm -hmm. 2013, the Shelby court case, Holder v. Shelby, or Shelby v. Holder. Shelby County v. Holder.
13: Holder, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
14: was decided look where we are on voting rights right now look what's happening in arizona around ballot boxes when you make decisions like that and eliminate race section five section two of the voting rights act and say discrimination is not playing an integral part in our system Mm -hmm. you have a constant erosion of protecting people's rights which we are seeing in voting Same, I think, will happen with this case. Look, I was in college when uh, Gruder was argued. It was like how I cut my organizing teeth. It was the first protest (laughs) I actually organized as a person. We went to the Sixth Circuit. I knew then, I was a college student at Ohio State, that affirmative action was appropriate. It was benefiting white women just as much as it was benefiting students of color. Just as much as I know, the whole basis of why we had to end segregation was because of race. It, like the, the concept that they say, oh, we don't need it because we ended segregation because of race. No, we, we need it because... We still know racism and prejudice and injustice and discrimination exist in our country.
2: And yet thinking about that, I wonder how it's going to play politically because a lot of what was said, and they weren't talking about the the current events and their arguments say in the same respect, but the idea of being anti-woke, the idea of um, wanting to ensure that the government stays out of our schools, Mm -hmm. the idea of thinking about this is no longer necessary. This does play politically. And I wonder how these arguments or ultimately a decision to, to overturn it might play on a campaign trail?
6: Well, it hasn't. I mean, this specific issue obviously hasn't been the hot topic. It has been legally. But it I, what it says to me also is just how, you know, we saw the overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision mm-hmm. as kind of the systematic working mm-hmm. by the conservative movement, by cons- conservative politicians, by conservative legal poli- or conservative lawyers as this big decades-long project to overturn mm-hmm. Roe versus Wade. And it's a similar way with affirmative action, too. Mm-hmm. It is an issue that animates the right cultural mm-hmm. issues, mm-hmm. animates con- the conservative legal world as well. And to take down a decision that has been in place since 1978, I think would be another major victory for the legal movement and, and, a, and a validation of what they have done in the courts and in the Senate to put these conservative legal experts in place.
2: And yet the question, of course, will come down to whether or not it would undermine the credibility further of the court. Mm. There's more to say about these issue. And Allison, you know, when you think about where we are, I mean, just think of the conversations that are happening across this nation. Tonight is, what, the day before early decision for many students across this country. It's not going to impact those students, but the idea of college admissions top of mind year in and year out in perpetuity.
1: Oh, we know it well at my house. We are in the throes <laughs> of it right now. Yeah. Um, there's no one getting any sleep at my house. But I loved it. I, mean, I, I really appreciated how you spelled it out, Laura, because it was supposed to level the playing field, and there was a hope that it would level the playing field in 20 or 25 years. But that seems to have been a very optimistic hope. Yeah. Um, but it's complicated, and I really appreciated how uh, your panel discussed it. All right, meanwhile, ever wonder how much your coworkers make? <laughs> Well, New York City is about to let you know. We'll tell you what's changing next. So, Laura, you and I have talked before about this very delicate topic how much the people around us are paid. And of mm. course, it's a hot question in a lot of workplaces. Should you know your coworkers' salaries?
2: Well, you know, now New York City, as you know, is upping the ante. Starting tomorrow, most employers in New York are going to be required, required by law to give salary ranges to people that are applying for jobs. And I know that you think that the transparency is key. You've got to be able to have it. I think it bodes well for other people. But I wonder if it causes more tension in the workplace than anything else. Both. It is super
1: helpful if you're negotiating your salary or asking for a raise. And it also can really piss people off.
2: Yeah, I think the latter is probably infinitely true. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> it's we're out both. there, yeah, it's probably both. But you know what? Let's while we plug that for a moment, put a little pin in it. We're not going to skip Halloween, are we? Because we're oh, not. No. We, it's tonight's Halloween. And we're going to tell you which dates report the most hauntings after this. It might coincide with who reports their salaries. <laughs> Maybe we it.
1: we'll find a tie-in. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Fantastic. <laughs>
2: Happy Halloween, everyone. you got a few hours left, and Americans are putting on their costumes or leaving out candy and getting into the Halloween spirit. And while we're here, sadly not in costume, I will add, Allison, I mean, not, we're dressed as anchovies, I mean, but should. go ahead. Yeah, we are dressed as people on TV. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. He wants to tell, we gotta tell you about which states are reporting, get this, the most hauntings.
1: Right. So there are haunted states. And thanks to our <laughs> friends at Axios and the Shadowlands website, we know the most haunted states. It turns out Wyoming Hmm. is number one, the most haunted state, meaning it has the most, quote, unexplained noises and screams. (laughs) Okay? Who's doing all the screaming in Wyoming? Vermont is number two, and South Dakota is number three.
2: You know, that shocks me, because you think about maybe open spaces, there's an echo chamber happening? I don't know. But also where I'm from, by the way, is Minnesota, and we ranked number 36, so... Here's something curious. not bragging.
1: New York, where I am... We're far down on the haunted list. We're at number 43, which is weird because I hear a lot of unexplained screams around here.
2: (laughs) I do, too. Coming from our building, coming from other places. Actually, in D.C., I feel like we might hear a lot more screams for whatever reason in eight days. But they'll be explained. They'll be explained noises. (laughs) Yeah, so that's One way or the other.
1: That's a little different. Okay, tell us what you think. Um, Have you ever witnessed a haunting? What's the spookiest place you've ever been? You can tweet us at Allison Camerata or the Laura Coates and we'll tell you what everyone is saying later in the program.
2: So just eight days remain for the parties to convince voters that they are the ones which have control over the Congress over the next two years. And the heavy hitters are certainly coming out. you got President Biden and former Presidents Trump and Obama hitting the campaign trail in the closing days ahead. More than 21 million
1: ballots have already been cast. So how many minds can still be changed? And what does all of this mean for the 2024 presidential race? Those are the questions for the return of our dueling panels this evening. So, Laura, just to let everybody know, this is where we each get four minutes and our panels make their best case and we sort of decide who wins at the end.
2: Well, we're going to win. So we'll just decide that <laughs> just, right, just now. D- That's decide right now. Just decide right now. No, well, not so fast. It's, it's not fine. So fast. No matter, well, here with me right now Republican strategist Rena Shah, CNN political analyst Sungmin Kim, and CNN political commentator Ashley Allison. Look at the clock. It's going right now. So, first of all, guys, there's a lot of anxiety for Democrats right now over the next eight days. But also even more for the next oh i don't know two years because they're wondering whether biden is the person they still want in office what do you think about the anxiety
14: i think everyone should always question which candidates should be on the ballot even if it's an incumbent i think that makes our democracy strong Even President Biden. I I am fine with people. If President Biden runs again, I will support him. But I think that democracy is about giving people opportunities to run on the ballot.
2: In Ohio, Tim Ryan did not seem to
6: be as self-assured and thought that he should be some new blood. What do you say to that? What's interesting about when he said that he was actually appearing with President Biden that day in Ohio, (laughs) willing to stand behind him and tout the administration's accomplishments. But when it comes to running in 2024, people like Tim Ryan are saying not so much. So it's just this weird dynamic that we're seeing. Democrats are extremely happy with the Biden administration's accomplishments, what what they have done for the past two years. So of course the no the no brainer answer should be, of course we want Biden to run again. But you're not seeing that a lot. There's a lot of nervousness about his age, Um, obviously. Looking at his approval ratings, looking at what else is out there, and it's yeah. just going to be an interesting dance for the next two years.
12: Look, I come from a culture where we <laughs> respect our elders. I grew up in the South, also, so double that. Um, and I, I would just say this: it's great that we have people who have all this expertise and knowledge. You know, you're talking about Diane and Chuck and Nancy. It seems like on the left, there's all these like people that are pushing 80. But then you've got Chuck Grassley over there running, and I'm like, hang up your running shoes. <laughs> so I'm an equal sort of applying this this thing that where we need to talk about who's leading our country. If you can't operate your own smartphone, if you don't know what cybersecurity is and two-factor authentication, you probably should not be making our laws. Well, look, SNL
2: actually wanted to weigh in on this. They had this to say. This was a kind of viral moment happening on Saturday. Listen to this.
4: Sometimes a familiar face (laughs) can be the most
8: terrifying In political news, President Biden has said he intends to run for re-election in 2024.
5: You trust him once. I know he's a little old, but he can still win. Right? He beat Trump.
4: But can he beat DeSantis?
8: I don't know.
0: I don't know!
8: Can you trust him again?
7: He's 79 now. Elections in two years. So that means...
9: When it feels like nothing's going
2: right. Gas prices are still kind of high. Even though it kind of is.
13: Why
14: are we so worried? He's done so much. Student debt relief, holding NATO together, infrastructure bill. But he
0: fell off his bike once.
14: ageism or funny funny and yet i think it's playing to the media being a little tough maybe on biden like falling off your bike i fall off my bike sometimes too do you Um, do you (laughs) actually i mean i just fall walking sometimes (laughs) so um no i think it was funny and that's what snl is supposed to do
6: what do you think Well, I think it it is funny. It is also a little ageist, but it also does, in a way, encapsulate some of the fears that we're seeing in the Democratic Party about a second Biden run. So there is a little bit of truth there. Mm. America
12: loves a strong man. I wish (laughs) they'd love a strong woman. So we need that. We need somebody (laughs) that looks vital
2: and young and strong. Way to bring that home. And you've got a table full of strong women here. I love that. Are you running for office? No, it's okay. Don't ask no. the question now. we we'll leave it in never. the ether. And re- oh, they said never. They said never. Never, they said, they said never. never mind. Not Alice, today. I'll go back to you, of course, because I don't even need the last four seconds because they just dropped the mic with having strong women comments. Wow. <laughs> that is some
1: confidence right there. All right, Laura, I see your SNL clip and I raise you an <laughs> SNL clip. Put four minutes on the clock, please, for me, and I will play the SNL clip. Go.
7: But if Biden's
1: not going to run, who will? Just
9: when you thought
5: the terror was over.
1: I, I don't know. I don't know. Kamala? up! <laughs> you realize
0: it's just beginning. There's got to be someone. Cory Booker! He's corny! Mary! Listen to
9: yourself! From the producers of Smile and the twisted minds of Morning Joe.
3: Perfect candidate.
7: They,
15: a superstar who can go all the way. Hillary.
9: Sometimes, Sometimes your best option
3: I'm with
5: I'm with is the one you fear the most.
1: Man, they really went for the jugular there, Mara. I mean, but I think that they have zeroed in on exactly the issue for all the Democrats who complain about Biden or complain about his age. Who do they want to replace him with in two years? Yeah,
7: that's exactly the problem. I mean, you know, the best comedy is rooted in truth, right? And that's exactly what they touch upon. People are saying, "Well, we want somebody else to run, but who? Who else is it going to be?" And that's actually how Biden ended up with this job in the first place. Is a couple of years ago they looked around and they said, "Who? Who's it going to be?" He
1: vanquished everyone else. May I remind people?
7: And he was the the one who was most likely to beat Trump. And look, he did it. So the question now is, who else would it be? And not just on the left, but also on the right. Who do they have? Trump and
1: DeSantis. Who else? But I mean, isn't that enough? I said they seem to have a lot of co- um, confidence in Trump and DeSantis. I mean, there is the at right. least
5: a clear-ish picture on the right with that Trump and DeSantis. So on the left, with you and you remove Biden, it would be a free for all. I think it does zero in on a real deep problem, and I think you zeroed in on something too. When Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, there was not a Democratic bench that was ready and waiting. It sent the party into chaos, and they are still dealing with the domino effects from that. And this is playing out in this way where, where Democrats are on the rock and a hard place. When you talk to base Democrats they, and you ask them, are they happy with what Biden has done? They will say yes. You ask them if they, you, you want him to run again, and it is like that SNL skit. And so it is—it is difficult for Democrats to both see his uh, successor while at the same time they—they—they—they—they they, they know that he's probably their best option against Trump. It, you, yeah, there's in, no option.
1: In keeping with the horror flick. Is there any Democrat who sends a shiver down the spine of Republicans at the moment?
11: I don't think so. And this is the problem for the Democrats is implicit in Joe Biden's 2020 campaign message was that he was going to be a bridge to the next generation of Democratic leaders. Well, okay, And, you know, this is no disrespect to the leadership, the House leadership. They're all octogenarians or good, honorable people. But. You know, they're, they're kind of aging out you know, as far as a lot of Democrats are concerned. They want to get to this next generation. And you know, they, I guess, you know, you got Gavin Newsom out there. He seems to be, you know, talking, of course, Kamala Harris. But, it, but if Republicans, Charlie, win
1: the Senate and the House, does Biden actually run again in 2024
11: or does he exit? Uh, my, my own feeling is he's probably not going to run again. Either I, way. Either way, I just I
5: just like you said,
11: I always thought he was going to be the bridge to the next generation Democratic leadership.
1: He's not saying that. I mean, I think that he's, yeah, but he's, he's not made-
5: saying that. But if Democrats have a bad midterms, the heat will turn up on President Biden's not run again immediately. The Democrats know that the next presidential election for them is existential. And if they think President Biden is weak, particularly after a bad midterms, the 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 blood will circle around the water like they, that will start almost that night.
7: And can I just make one clarification? In two seconds, yeah. When we're talking about the future, I'm talking about beyond 2024. So yes, Trump, DeSantis, good enough for 2024. Got it. Who else beyond that? Well done, panel. (laughs)
1: Well done. Okay, Laura, your thoughts.
2: Well, she took the three seconds that I handed back to you. <laughs> That's and true. I am, um, it's okay with it. I'm okay. I like the orange color she's wearing, so I'm going to give it to her completely. Thank you. That was generous. Um, but, that, but that SNL skit, I mean, y- y- you're right. The idea of comedy reflecting a lot of what we're seeing and what the anxiety is. And it's almost a safe space for people to joke about it without having maybe Biden take a toll or a hit at the polls. Because remember, he's not on the actual ballot in eight days, but his shadow, certainly Trump's shadow, all over it. Well,
1: and furthermore, that SNL skit is actually scary. It is so creepy the way they did it. I mean, well done. Well done to them. They took like every single horror flick meme and, you know, put it together and I was scared watching it.
2: Can I admit something to you, though? Like, I'm I'm getting to the point where I watch Saturday Night Live on Sunday morning when I wake up because it's too late. Oh, me too. Is that okay? Okay, good. There you go.
1: I'm so with you.
2: All right, we want to know what
1: you think about all this can anything change the races at this point in the midterms? And what is going to happen in 2024? You can tweet us at the Laura Coates and Allison Camerata. Vile anti-Semitic messages popping up across Florida this weekend. First, there were disgusting banners reading end Jewish supremacy in America and honk if you know it's the Jews. These were hanging from a highway overpass in Jacksonville. Then on Saturday also in Jacksonville the message Kanye was right about Jews was scrolling. I don't know if you it's hard to see but it was scrolling outside of the football stadium during the big Georgia Florida game referencing Kanye West's recent anti-Semitic comments. Videos from social media show the same message outside another building in Jacksonville on Saturday night. And then there were also uh, incidents that happened in terms of vandalism and swastikas and disgusting things being spray painted at a playground in Weston. So let's bring in CNN's senior legal analyst, Ellie Hodig. Also, we have Mara S. Campo and Estet Herndon are back with us. Um, so obviously, it's not just Florida. Um, according to the um, ADL, uh 2021 had a high of anti Semitic um, incidents across the country. There were 2,717, and if you compare that to, I think, just four or five years earlier, it was a fraction of that. So, Mara, something's happening across the country.
7: I mean, what we're seeing here with these specific incidents, where they're referencing Kanye West, we are seeing what happens when someone who is influential with a huge platform normalizes or attempts to normalize this kind of hateful speech. There is a direct line between this kind of hateful speech and continuously deteriorating behavior. We have seen it deteriorate even further when it comes to things like shootings with the Buffalo shooter. We saw that he had messaging written on his assault rifle that came directly from hate speech commentary. We have seen it with the El Paso shooter who said that he drove several hours to go to a Walmart so he could target Mexican immigrants crossing the border, he believes So we see how this hate speech can then translate into hateful acts because these social contracts that keep us all behaving in, in, in dignified ways, they're not written on stone. They're written on tissue paper. They are actually incredibly fragile. This speech is the beginning of what tears those apart.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're written in our- Our conscience—they're written in our own moral compass—and that's all like malfunctioning right now. But they're so fragile
7: because we we all have to agree to the dignity of one another for it to work. And when
1: it starts to unravel, it can unravel very quickly. You know, I was interested, Ellie, in what the sheriff in Jacksonville said. "A quote: At this time, the sheriff's office has not identified any crimes having been committed. The comments displayed do not include any type of threat and are protected by the First Amendment." Okay. I mean, I get that. But obviously, vandalism is a crime. But I mean, I guess just projecting something on a wall is not.
15: Correct. I mean, sadly, that is largely a correct legal statement. Hate speech, as vile as it is, is not a crime unaccompanied by action. Of course, if you attack someone, assault someone, that's going to be a crime. And probably even more serious because it's going to be a hate crime. If you commit vandalism, that too would be a crime. But merely saying things, Kanye West's tweet as grotesque, anti-Semitic, Vile as it was is not a crime. We do have a very broad First Amendment. And I think Mara made a really good point. Look, there is nothing new about anti-Semitism, racism. These things go back centuries. But what's so alarming to me, and I think you hit it on the head, is how little it takes to spark this. One high profile person sends off one crazy tweet like that. And look at all that follows so eagerly. That is really alarming to me. That's
1: so said. Is that true? I mean, is it true that Kanye West has this ripple effect? So, so, the stuff that he has said, he is lighting the spark of this. Obviously, these things predated him, uh, all of the horrible violence that we've seen in some of these mass shootings. But what is the effect of Kanye putting something out to all his millions of followers?
5: I don't think that we can minimize the, the the ripple effects that have come from this incident. This is someone using their global platform to spread that hateful ideology. I do think that has tangible effects. But we should also say that that comes alongside a, a growth of anti-Semitic language that we've seen across the board. That has been echoed even by the former president, Donald Trump. That has been echoed by mainstream political figures on right and left. And I think that that is really what we're seeing cause some of this uh, of real growth. I mean, on uh, for the reporting that we do, we talk to grassroots conservatives who use, uh, uh, who use the language of Soros and elites and globalists so much, even in their language of how they express what they see is happening in the country right now. We know that that over, uh, overlaps with dehumanizing anti-Semitic language. And so it is at the core to what a lot of people's political ideology is. And that is the scary part, is how widespread... Uh, these hateful uh these hateful thoughts and actions really are
15: instead, instead nailed right now exactly what the coded dog whistle is of anti-semitism and honestly i didn't even understand this for a lot of my life but it's always this notion that jews run the world This secret cabal of jews runs hollywood runs the banks run the media and i, I remember when i was in college in a poli sci class and someone said sort of casually a friend of mine well jewish people run hollywood and afterwards another one of my friends said can you believe he said that and i, I at the time, was like, why? Why is that, is that bad? Is that? I didn't understand it. But now I know, and we see it. It's one of the common threads here that this secret group of Jews is secretly organizing and running the world. And that is one of the most sort of vile, virulent forms of anti-Semitism.
1: And then there are these high-profile people like Kanye or now uh, Kyrie Irving who sort of pretend not to understand that they have a huge platform and that what they say does impact people. So here's what Kyrie Irving just said.
5: What I post does not mean that I support everything that's being said or everything that's being done or I'm campaigning for anything. All I do is post things for my people and my community and those that it's actually gonna impact.
8: Do you, I guess, understand or not understand those that might imply that that work had anti-Semitic leanings in it? In, and I only ask this because the tweet is still up there. So I We're in 2022.
5: It's on Amazon, a public platform. Whether you wanna go watch it or not is up to you. There's things being posted every day. I'm no different than the next human being, so don't treat me any different. I said, what did he do? He, he uh, uh, shared a book. I, I, I should not say. I, he shared a book that had anti-Semitic like, uh, uh, ideology in it. I don't specifically know what the specific, but I, I think it was talking about, I remember a quote being Jewish slave ships, like using that same type of ideology that we talked about, pointing at Jewish, at, at Jewish folks for running a secret cabal that is has the same type of of roots that we've seen in great replacement theory, the same type of roots we have seen from Louis Farrakhan, other kind of ideologies that have used that rhetoric as justification to really dehumanize a larger group of people. But I think we have what we see from Kyrie here is an, is another instance of people just having a lack of shame right now, too. I mean, at the minimum, there is a, there is no recognition that those actions hurt others, and there's no willingness to learn from. What those, have, what those folks have communicated. And I think that is a thing we see across politics right now, across kind of public life, is a refusal to, to even take information in good faith and do the basics that you would think to understand how your actions are imposed. Yeah,
1: I mean, a lack of accountability. Very well, it's, it's
7: a willful ignorance. You know, to, to give an example of someone who did things right, Lizzo used a, song, a word in a song that the disabled community said, this is a slur. She said, I did not know that. She apologized, and she changed the song. We don't know what we don't know, but when it's been brought to your attention, it's your responsibility to learn what you did wrong and to fix it, especially if you're a public figure. Such a great point.
1: And also the idea that... It doesn't just because I post something doesn't mean that I believe it or support it. Well, it
2: should, Laura. I mean, yeah. that's it is seen as an endorsement. You described a cop-out, the idea, oh, I'm sorry, was that, I didn't realize, it just it rings disingenuous, and I do think you have responsibility, but part of the idea, and I think wasn't the the sort of the free-for-all, um, hell-related place that Elon Musk spoke about Felscape. the it won't be that, mm-hmm. and you have the hell gate, and you kind of have this notion of it being a free-for-all, but people want to have zero accountability, mm-hmm. and the fact of the matter is, in the U.S., sure, we have free speech, but... Not without some consequences. So that's an ongoing concern and conversation to have. Also, the one we're going to have next, Allison, is about the president of Brazil. He is known as the Trump of the tropics, and so far, refusing to concede defeat in the election for his presidency. In the lead up to the vote, Jair Bolsonaro claimed he'd been a victim and he'd be a victim of electoral fraud. Sound a little familiar? And of course, not offering any evidence. Sound even more familiar? So, what does this mean for democracy in Brazil and maybe what we can learn here abroad? Talk about it next. (music) Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is set to become the next president of Brazil, defeating his far right rival and incumbent, Jair. Bolsonaro by a razor-thin margin of just under 51 percent to Bolsonaro's 49.1 percent in Sunday's runoff election. Now, Bolsonaro, of course, had become famous as a kind of Trump-like figure in Latin America. Rena Shaw is back and joining us now, Miles Taylor, former chief of staff to DHS secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, also back, Ashley Allison. You know, I really wanted to cover this story in part because we oftentimes look to the UK or our European allies in some respect to draw comparisons about what might be happening here in the United States. But the truth of the matter is, all over the world and also in places like Brazil, you are seeing some comparisons about democracy being challenged, being in peril. And this country in Brazil has some very striking parallels. In fact, Even tonight, they're trying to have security presence available because they might have all these protests um, that are pro-Bolsonaro. And I'm wondering, in terms of the lessons to be learned or what we can be looking at, are you seeing some kinds of blueprints or analogies that you want to point out?
16: Well, look, I, I think it is worrying not just in Brazil, around the world, the United States example is being looked at. What happened in the 2020 election wasn't some tiny country in a far corner of the globe. The entire world watched it. And they watched it in horror. But would-be autocrats around the world watched it with some level of excitement. Because Mm -hmm. this was something to emulate. This was something to justify their behavior in the future. Now, let's hope that Bolsonaro's silence today is sort of a bad Halloween trick and nothing more. And, you know, delay. He's the first Brazilian president in their history who have been booted from office. So they're probably digesting this. And I think the good news is most of his allies have come out and since congratulated Lula on winning the presidency. But this is still a big concern. The fact that there is a delay and the fact that there's uncertainty even still days later, I think is really raising anxiety in Mm -hmm. Brazil. And again, uh, sets a worrying precedent of leaders delaying concessions around the world, which creates the opportunity for nefarious activity. And of
2: course, you've got President Biden jumping to congratulate, I think probably a nod to the blueprint that may have been inadvertently created across the globe. And that very notion, um, you have the oldest son of Bolsonaro taking to Twitter mm-hmm. to say, let's not give up on our Brazil. And the idea is sort of soaking the notion of not to concede. What parallels do you see as, I mean, is this the, the chicken or the egg? Is what's to come or what has been? Well, I think it's both. Uh, first, what I also, I'm a people
14: power person. And so I think what we saw similar to in 2020 is that a candidate that was extremist to the right and conservative, the people made their voices heard by their vote. And they said, that's not the world I wanna live in. And that's what happened in America in 2020. Now, I think it is some foreshadowing for what might come in 20, mm. for in the next eight days actually. Because you have Steve Bannon immediately also going on air into his media outlets and saying, look what's happening in Brazil, folks. And we're not going to let that happen here. And kind of, again, seeding this uh radicalized effort of these people who want to intimidate voters who want to storm the Capitol. And so I think he is pulling a a little bit from the Brazilian playbook and saying, see what's happening here. If he stands up and says, I'm not going to concede, that's what our candidates need to do in 2022. But the people can say no and can show out in numbers and be definitive and say, I'm going to elect people that represent me and I want every vote to be counted.
2: It does kind of remind you, Arena, about the idea just last week, President President Trump making the comment uh, that was seen in a Tucker Carlson documentary, the idea of um, Blake Masters, he was telling him, you can't go soft on these issues. If you get soft, you'll lose. Talking about election denialism, I mean... Does this foreshadow in some respects that people are looking to see, hey, is this going to work down there and a nod towards here in eight days? Well, there's a lot to unpack here. First, there's
12: a great irony to me. The Republicans I speak to who point to countries in South America and say, we're not those countries, we don't want to be those countries, places like Venezuela, Brazil, Colombia. They talk about these places like they're terrible places. Well, why are you letting basically Bolsonaro's twin brother do exactly what Bolsonaro's doing down there? So this is the thing about Republicans who support Trump. They need to pay attention to these authoritarian regimes because what they do is heighten people's anxiety with these populist tendencies sort of promising them this utopia. And we all know that's not possible. So I think let's back up here for a second. Like you may alluded to earlier, they're gonna. Uh, what's gonna happen here is Bolsonaro is gonna fight the process. He's gonna create these delays, and I think that's really bad in general. And anybody looking at that is sort of like, okay, that makes sense, but it doesn't make sense because that's what's happening there as a potential for leaving the door open to people wanting to do a coup. Mm. Now, we know Brazil's a place that many coups have happened. The great irony here is in 2024, we can't rule out it would happen here.
2: I mean, the idea here of the fighting the process, you know, we ought not to take issue with fighting, uh, fighting for a legitimate process, right? A recount, if there are reasons to have so, if there's an evidential justification to challenge the results. But what we see here, I think your larger point, was the idea of putting that out into the universe, planting the seed, and hoping that it will result in the maintenance of power.
16: Well, and, and, and that's exactly what we saw Donald Trump do. There wasn't a hint of fraud in the 2020 election. It was the most secure election in modern history until Donald Trump fantasized that there was fraud. And then rumors of fraud started to pop up around the country. That's what, as Rena was saying, you know, that period of uncertainty, the longer it goes the more those fantasies can come to fruition. The thing that actually worries me the most about this is on Twitter and elsewhere on social media, these red cap MAGA hat wearing pro-Trump frat boys somehow are very attuned to foreign policy all of a sudden. (laughs) These people are all commenting about Brazil's election. You know, kids who five years ago wouldn't have thought a thing about a foreign election. But now they have a keen interest in seeing Bolsonaro, who they know is a friend of Trump, stay in power. That's what's worrying to me, is the only thing that's made them pay attention to foreign policy is someone might mimic their dear leader.
2: I mean, the connective tissue here, I think, is so apparent, Allison. when you think about these things, because as we said, it was also the setup to it. The idea of playing the seed of, look, there's election fraud. There's election fraud. I'm going to contest the results. Everything's not fair. We're seeing that level of election denialism on the campaign trails mm-hmm. right now
1: all because someone's ego couldn't handle losing. Mm -hmm. We used to call that a sore loser. And that is now, the fact that it has proliferated around the globe is stunning to see. Um, All right, so we're gonna uh, lighten it up with some bizarre stories next, uh, Laura, because the real life White Lotus, stories from service industry workers who cater to the one percenters and all of the really bizarre demands
2: they make. I'm not in that 1%. I'm not.
1: Okay, we'll see. We'll (laughs) see. Because I have some notes here on what you demand.
2: (laughs) All right, if you've ever seen The White Lotus, our sister network, HBO, then you've been treated to the sight of, well, to put it bluntly, rich people behaving badly. In its first season, you see wealthy guests vacation at an exclusive Hawaiian resort and all the Hoops employees jump through to keep these guests satisfied. Second season, of course, is on right now.
1: So the Washington Post decided to look into the stories of real hotel workers and what they have to do for real rich people. And it's actually even better than what you see on White Lotus. So back with us is Charlie Dent. Mara Escampo and Ested Herndon. Okay, so here's what the Washington Post found. Here's just a few of the demands that rich people make of the hotel workers, okay? So um, one guest wanted a real authentic mermaid with a splash tail in the pool. That's Mm. kinky. Mm. (laughs) One uh, guest in France wanted San Pellegrino water delivered the same day from Italy so she could wash her hair. They had to forget that for her. Another guest in Zurich had to have a piece of lawn so his dog could pee in the hotel suite. <laughs> That's gross. And then one guest uh, uh, ordered a $50,000 foreign tree frog to be delivered for his daughter, who then left it in the hotel when they checked out. <laughs> I mean, this is madness. I've been binging um, White Lotus on my commute home, and it's just, you know, cringy to see all of this, but it's real. Yeah, you know, it's such a great show and such a great commentary on wealth. You know, the thing is, with some
7: of these demands, some of them just sound like people having fun with their money. And who can blame them for that? Like, if you can... you know, A tree uh, frog. Know, a tree for- or bring in a mermaid for, say, a kid's birthday party, and you're paying I hope them it's fairly. For a kid's birthday party. Hopefully, yes, not an adult birthday party. But some of these things just seem to me like having fun with your money. But there's a saying that money doesn't change who you are. Money reveals who you are. So there are, of course, people who are incredibly wealthy, and they're also incredibly kind and generous. But we do see the other side of this. And one of the stories... That that really hit me in the Washington Post that they highlighted was of this family that refused to communicate directly with the wait staff. They would communicate with the bodyguards who would then communicate with the wait staff. And this family had children. So you think to yourself, what are the children learning when they're seeing what's taking place? And that's
1: how you get children that grow up to be monsters. That's a great point. You're right. Not all rich people are bad. I'm yeah. glad they were giving that disclaimer, but there's just a lot of bad behavior happening. And for another one that they found, a Bravo star screamed at her driver for not picking up her luggage fast enough.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that this behavior is stuff that we uh, sometimes ascribe only to rich people, but unfortunately, we see it all the time everywhere. I remember back when I was a a sandwich artist at Jimmy John's in (laughs) Wisconsin, and the way people would act about their subs would resemble some of this behavior from White Lotus. So I think even so, it's oftentimes uh, associated with the rich, associated with the wealthy. They're the ones calling in the mermaids. I think a lot more people have a little bit of the White Lotus in them than they want to admit.
1: That's such a great point. First of all, sandwich artists. That's a very Sandwich cool artist. title Sandwich very artist Sandwich cool artist I took it very,
5: very seriously um, No,
1: you're right I was a waitress yeah. for a long time And I've also uh, witnessed Some bad behavior From people who may have been Overserved by me um, But <laughs> Charlie You have never seen the show Is that right?
11: I have never seen the show You need you- to watch it I I shall, and uh, all I can say is I was a desk clerk at one time, and I was a dishwasher. And uh, I'll tell you, I I have seen some bad behavior, but I come from a kind of a gritty town. When people had money, they didn't talk about it. They didn't show it. They had their first nickel. They didn't drive fancy cars. They lived in modest houses. That's uh, old school, Charlie. That is old school, and I like those kinds of people.
1: (laughs) uh, (laughs) Absolutely. Much better than, you know, ordering the $50,000 tree frog that you then leave in the
2: hotel. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Laura, your thoughts. On the tree frog, I've got a lot of them. But I'm going to talk right now to Rena Shaw, Miles Taylor, and Ashley Allison on this point. Because I got to tell you, first of all, if anyone spoils this show for me right now, I have not watched everything. But the idea of rich people behaving badly, we've all seen this. But in terms of how this plays in real life, you guys, we've seen the last several years during the pandemic, people not returning to work in part because it wasn't worth it, they thought. thought What they were getting in the non-livable wages and how they were being treated, I mean, we saw this in real time. Absolutely. I agree with this. You
14: don't have to be uh, the 1% to treat people in the service industry poorly. Um, We saw how essential workers were taken for granted. People who, I used to be a cash, my first job, I was a cashier. Well, not my first, second job, I was a cashier at a grocery store, and how those individuals had to show up every single day so we could still get our groceries. Um, now, when you have more money, you can get a frog and treat the person who delivered the frog poorly, but it doesn't mean that um, we need to treat people no matter what, it's about the dignity of work, paying them a fair wage, and treating everybody with humanity. And
2: in part, the subtext of a show like that, or The Conversations, and part of these discussions more broadly, is oftentimes the racial dynamics at that right. play of the haves and the have-nots, not universally. But the idea of how that factors into these conversations, I think this is why this is resonating so much with people. Yeah, but I... I- <laughs> let me back
12: up and just say I have no interest in watching this I've never watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians and just no interest in watching people behave badly very different shows
16: very different shows you know, I think you'll enjoy this it's really cause a, cause people I just
12: watched it before exactly, I came at the end of the day Miles it's like it's very different in show by the way <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> but we'll leave that we'll put the Both bookmark for a second that's fine <laughs> I feel like there's a Kardashianization of our culture in general people who have credit cards at the ready they want a champagne lifestyle so they're gonna are they really rich are these people really rich are they just putting things on credit, right? And wanting to behave like divas because guess what? All of us can have a champagne lifestyle if you've got a credit card and you're willing to rack up some debt to have a good time. I'm a millennial. I'll be honest. My generation, we had credit card reps on our campus. I've seen this. So I kind of don't want to watch this because I'm just like people behaving badly when they have access to luxury goods and want to behave some kind of way. It's the problem with where we're at. No empathy. And frankly, where does the pendulum swing back to just decency? I've been an aerobics instructor, I've been a tutor, I've worked retail and a healthcare clinic. I've seen people behave badly in all these settings, and it's only getting worse. So I'm just like, but they all got
2: rich. You know, that's the thing. We need a full show on all of our prior careers (laughs) because I am fascinated on the long list that we all have here. Miles, what was it? Bartender,
16: (laughs) dishwasher, kind of like a newspaper boy. All like of those that. things were better than politics. I Literally any day when Charlie Dent just also said he had been a dishwasher, I thought, we've both been in politics. I bet Charlie would rather go back to being a dishwasher than staying in this industry. But that's neither here nor there. Because on White Lotus, I just watched the episode before I came here, wasn't planning on being a part of this panel, but here we are talking <laughs> about <it. laughs> but, uh, Interesting show, worth watching. The thing that you said, though, Laura, really makes me feel like w- we keep referring to this decade as the new Roaring 20s. Because of all the exciting things that could happen in technology in the world, but also like the last Roaring Twenties, it's going to be a period of extraordinary transition for blue collar workers in this country. Technology's changing. Society's changing. The Great Resignation echoes what we saw a hundred years ago. And if you... After
12: the Black Death. The, after right? the
16: Black Death. And, and you look Same underneath explain. the Great Gatsby, and that was also a similar story. And, and you know, White Lotus is another Great Gatsby-like story. And, and I think we really do have to zoom in on what's happening in that part of society, because it's going to affect the next 10, 20 years of American life, uh, you know, if these trends continue.
2: I welcome any and all F. Scott Fitzgerald references, <laughs> because, of course, he's from St. Paul, Minnesota. So there you have it, Allison. I mean, I'm just saying nice. the references are there. Well See what I did there? It was, just, it was just all connected. It was the same high school as me as well. Not the same year because I'd be much older. <laughs> but same it, place. Yes.
1: I, 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 I mean, I could do that math. But, um, <laughs> but that is impressive. That's great. I had no idea. That's a fun fact. But hold on. Let me just ask, Charlie. Would you rather be a politician or a dishwasher? <laughs>
11: Uh, I'd rather be a politician. Dishwash is hard work. It is way. hard work. <laughs> pots and pans.
1: Yeah, it is hard work. And we do, uh, Laura, it would be great for us to do a segment on that because I also was a dishwasher at Friendly's for a week. That hot fudge, that sticks wow. on those wow. metal pots really Ooh. hard. So anyway, Man, I'll tell you about a Friendly's that Friendly's
2: frap, though, let me tell you something. Nothing better. With a little, little malt ball in there. To, you know what? Forget it. This is a whole thing. Whole um,
1: thing. All right. Uh, time for all of you to sound off. And we'll read your tweets
0: next.
2: (laughs) All right. It's time to sound off. Let's see what you are saying tonight out there. We've got one from Coach L. It says... um, To assume that there's no need for affirmative action, Justice Roberts blindly assumes that the institutions in this country that make these decisions have resolved their biases and that all are on an equal playing field. Implicit bias.
1: Okay, this next one is about haunted places. This comes Mm. from Meredith. Uh, She says, Cape May, New Jersey is definitely haunted. I think I agree with her. We came back to our hotel room at the Inn of Cape May to find the TV on, but not tuned, just white noise. And that night, I felt someone sit on the foot of my bed. Ooh. Oh, my God. Those are
2: her kids messing with her. (laughs) (laughs) She's convinced me. I think that place is haunted. Oh, God. We've got one on pay transparency from Damon. This one says, pay transparency is an important tool to weed out salary discrimination. You can't solve the problem if you can't see the problem. So, yes, I'm all for it. Well, there you go, Allison. I mean, I agree.
1: I do think that it's important to have that information, but I do think that it also can engender some resentment. Mm. But maybe it's worth it, you know? Yeah. All right, you know where to find us,
2: at Allison Camerota and at the Laura Coates. Thanks for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues.